excited. We are back in uh, Judges today, and Pastor Shane is uh, teaching us through Judges 10 and 11, and we're going to kick things off with a scripture reading from Brooke. This is John 1, 11 to 14. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the word of God. Thank you, Brooke. Well, good morning, Sound City. Really good to be with you guys. Uh, As Pastor Jamin mentioned, my name is Shane. I'm also one of the pastors here. And if uh, I haven't had a chance to meet you just yet, I'd love to meet you. Come up after service. I'd love to meet you if you're new around here. Um, We started with a reading from the book of John. And uh, I promise that we'll get back to that. So it's a passage from John that's talking about Jesus. But yet where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning is digging back into the book of Judges. And we've been away from the book of Judges for the last three weeks or so while Pastor Aaron was leading us through a little Easter mini-series. And since we've been away from Judges for a while, I was thinking a good place for us to start might be to uh, just do a little bit of a series recap before we jump back into chapter 10, which is where we left off back in March. And so that means, yeah, for those of you who are new, um, it's a great time for you to jump in as well. But before we go any further, uh, let me pray for us. And ask God to help us along this morning, and then we'll dig in from there. Lord God, I pray for myself, for these friends, that you would teach us from your word this morning. That you would change us and disciple us with your truth, and that you'd be really gentle with us as you do. Father God, I pray that you would help me to teach your word faithfully this morning. And I pray for your protection over us as we gather here in your name. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So... Let's get things started by first getting our bearings a bit as we settle back into the book of Judges. And to do that, I want to start all the way back in the time of Moses around 1500 B.C. where we find him leading God's people, Israel, out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt. God, through Moses, he frees his people from Pharaoh's grip. He miraculously parts the Red Sea for them to have safe passage. They move on through the Red Sea. He brings the waters back down around the armies that were chasing them as they fled from Egypt, showing God's people his great love for them, his great provision for them, his great power. But then God's people quickly forget the greatness of their God, don't they? For those of you who know the story. And Moses ends up leading a pretty grumbly and complaining bunch, um, Israel, through the wilderness and then all the way up to the borders of the promised land that God had sworn to give his chosen people. But as many of you will remember, Moses would not be the one to actually bring the people into the land itself. That honor would go to a man named Joshua who had been Moses' assistant and who was a gifted political and military and spiritual leader in his own right. And we find a little bit of that story that will be helpful for us this morning here in Joshua 1, which I'll read for us. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people 
to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So Joshua leads the people of Israel into the land that was promised to their forefathers by God, and he enjoys really pretty great success as a faithful leader of God's people, just as God had said that he would. And now throughout his time as their leader, he also faithfully reminds Israel that it was God who had given them this prosperity, God who had given them success in the land, and he wanted to encourage them to continue to obey God and to obey his words so that they might continue to thrive in the land and so that they might become a faithful witness to a watching world concerning the greatness of the one true God, the God of Israel. Now, for their protection and their good, God had also, through Joshua, commanded Israel to drive out the Canaanite people, the current residents of the land, from the land that he had given them so that they wouldn't fall victim to the corruption and the depravity and the idol worship of the Canaanite people. Joshua tells Israel's leaders in Joshua 23, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So we've got our good and godly leader, Joshua, giving them this this stern but helpful warning. And then Joshua dies, and God's people begin to forget. From Judges 2, starting at verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at age 110 years. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So after Joshua dies, this new generation of God's people immediately begin to forget about their God, don't they? They forget about the pleadings and warnings of Joshua. They forget about uh, this, this, this push from him and others to drive out the Canaanite people from the land. They forget to stay near to. They forget to obey their God. And because of this, the worst of all that was feared then comes to pass. And the corruption and the sin and the idolatry begin to take root in God's people in some pretty horrific ways. Now, God had called people, as you know, he he'd called his people, as you know, to be a, a really set-apart people, to be a holy people. But now, instead, his people are adopting the Canaanite culture and their religious practices. And with that, the cycle or pattern that we had previously in our series called the downward spiral of the judges, that's where that begins. And this cycle that we've seen over and over again is called the downward spiral because it gets worse and worse every time that God calls a subsequent judge into leadership to deliver his people from their oppressors and from themselves. And so because it gets worse and worse, the downward spiral goes. And the cycle looks something like this, just to refresh our memories. Part one is sin. God's people stray from God and they stumble into sin and idolatry. Part two is oppression. As a result of their sin, God gives them over to the oppression of these peoples that they had failed to drive out of the land. Then part three, repentance. God's people eventually cry out to him in distress 
and with some level of repentance as well. And then part four, deliverance. God raises up a judge. And you'll remember that these judges are not judges in the sense that we think of them today. They're these tribal military type leaders that the Bible calls judges. And in that deliverance phase, God raises up a judge to deliver and save his people from their oppression and from idolatry. And then part five, peace. God's people experience a level of peace in the land as a result of their returning to faithfulness in God. That is, until they fall into sin, and then we start the cycle all over again. And in our Judges series so far, in chapters 1 through 9, which is what we've covered to date, we've seen this cycle of spiraling corruption several times through the first seven of 12 judges that we're going to see, and through some other characters as well. And that leads us up to where we are today. When we enter into chapter 10 and are about to be introduced to another judge named Jephthah. And what we find in the story of Jephthah that I want to make sure that we don't miss amongst the lots of varied things that we'll talk about today. Is that as Christians we are dependent upon God's grace, upon God's choosing, and upon God's truth. You believe that? As Christians we're dependent upon God's grace, God's choosing, and God's truth. That's our big idea. That's our central proposition for today. So with that in mind, let's pick up our story in chapter 10, verse 6, and let's see what God has for us today. Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So here, right away in verse 6, we already see what looks to be the beginnings of another, another turn of that downward cycle, don't we? In Israel's backsliding into immorality and idolatry, here in verse 6, we have stumbled upon part 1, the sin part of this new cycle. In fact, this is the sixth time overall in Judges that we're told of Israel's turning of their back on God. But even worse than this being just the sixth time, which is bad enough, is that what's described here in verse 6 represents one of the bleakest spiritual times in the history of the nation of Israel. What we see in this particular description of Israel's slide into idolatry is that it is the most numerous one in the entire book, with no less than seven groupings of pagan gods listed here. And even if some are meant to be inclusive of some of the others, what the author of Judges means to communicate here is that during this period in Israel's history, there was almost no false god or no evil that God's people were not willing to pursue. All right, that brings us to verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead, and the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also in, against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed." So, with this new turn of the downward spiral in Judges that started back in verse 6 with the mass defection of Israel from their God to the worship of other gods, that was part one of a new sin cycle. Now here in 7 through 9, what we see is first God's anger in verse 7. Then he sells them into the hands of their enemies, also verse 7. And then in verse 8, we see Israel is crushed and oppressed. There's our key word. Crushed and oppressed by them for the next 18 
years. So it looks like we can now fill in part two as well of this new turn in the downward spiral, the oppression part of the cycle. Okay, that brings us to verse 10. And so this is after 18 years have passed, and then we hit verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen, and let them save you in your time of distress. So God's people cry out to God, and they admit their sin, and God's response is certainly one of righteous anger, but also what reads to me like a little bit of godly sarcasm, right? I think maybe for more than just me, has anybody else been always looking for some biblical precedent for a spiritual gift of sarcasm? So now maybe we have it. We'll see if my wife believes that and will accept that as biblical precedent for my, for my sarcasm. Uh, okay. So obviously, God's people, Israel, they're, they're not hearing what they had hoped for uh, in God's initial response. And so after some time and reflection, I would hope, Israel has a second appeal that they want to make. And that starts in verse 15 and the beginning of 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So do we see any difference between these two appeals? What do you notice? What I'd offer to you is that one of these appeals is really nothing more than a simple confession, right? The first one, uh, the first appeal, they tell God what he obviously would have already known, and they say, God, we've sinned against you and served other gods. To which, after the sarcasm we just heard, I'm picturing God being like, yeah, duh. But that's not what God wants from his people, right? I mean, confession, it isn't nothing, but before an omniscient and all-knowing God, it isn't very much either. But then it, and, and what we see then in the next one by comparison is something markedly different in their appeal in verse 15 and 16, don't we? It starts the same. It starts with a simple confession of their sins, but then it moves into an acknowledgement of who God is and of his authority and rule when they say, do to us whatever you want. That's submission, right? That's a contrite heart. And then they turn in humility this time and say, please deliver us. Please save us this day. And then the appeal goes even further at the beginning of 16, saying, so they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord. Okay, now we're getting somewhere, right? Now we're getting somewhere. What just happened there? Yes, yeah. So repentance is really what we're seeing here, isn't it? Repentance, and for those keeping track, uh, that means for our downward spiral, the turn that we've just started in these verses that we've covered so far, that means we can now uh, mark off on our board, on our scoreboard part three, uh, which is the repentance part of the cycle. But before we skip too quickly past this idea of repentance that we see here, I want to talk for a minute about why we feel so comfortable calling Israel's second appeal repentance, but not the first. If you guys ever heard this expression, we're saved by grace by grace alone, through faith alone, but that the faith that saves is never alone. You heard that before? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the faith that saves 
is never alone. And what that saying is meaning to communicate is this, that if faith is real, it will also be active. Or said another way, there's a pretty big difference between confession and repentance. Pretty big difference between confession and repentance. The word repent in the Greek is metanuo, and it means to turn, to literally turn, to change one's ways. And so what we see happening in this second appeal from Israel to their God is them returning to him. The returning to the covenant promises God had made with their forefathers that he would be their God if they would follow him, obey him, and really be his people. Okay, so let's move forward now and see how God responds to this second, more repentant appeal. In the second half of verse 16, it says this, And he became, he being God, he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, the language is a little funky here because of what we think of when we think of the word impatient. That seems to feel like frustration or anger or something like that. But if you can picture what a good impatience might look like, then we're getting closer to what the author of Judges is meaning to convey. As one scholar has put it, what God's really trying to say here is something more like, and he could bear his people's misery no longer. And he could bear his people's misery no longer. So he sees his people's genuine turning to him, their sincerity of heart, the overflow of their hearts into now how they are living as well. And his response is, he can bear the people's misery no longer. This says so much about our God, doesn't it? This says so much about the God of the scriptures. One commentator said it this way, No matter how persistently they rebelled and sinned against him, God persisted in his grace toward them. The Lord could have written them off, and the angels would not have missed one note of their eternal praise, but God's heart was in turmoil over what Israel was suffering, and finally he said, that's enough. I won't allow them to endure anymore. Sometimes, even as Christians, I I think we believe the lie or can be tempted to that the seemingly violent God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the grace-filled and loving God of the New Testament. But here in Judges, we're finding some pretty compelling evidence to the contrary, aren't we? Now, I'm sure many of you have read ahead. And let me just ask you this. uh, Is Israel going to sin against God again after this point in the story? Yes. Yes, they are. Are they going to go like neck deep into pagan beliefs and religious idolatry again before all that long? Yes, they are. And do we think somehow that God does not know about this? No. Of course he knows. Of course he knows. And yet over and over again, God still delivers his people, doesn't he? Amen. Amen. Sound City, throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we find a God who takes sin seriously, absolutely, but who is also infinitely merciful unreasonably loving and undeniably full of grace toward his people. How about you and me? Are you likely to stray from God again in your lifetime sometime, Christians? Oh, you guys are quiet now all of a sudden. Yes. Are you likely to turn from God and find your peace and rest and identity and hope in something other than God, even in like the next 10 minutes? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, probably so. I would submit to you, friends, that we are a people always and ever in desperate need of God's mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace. Or said another way, as sinner saints, as Christians, we are dependent upon God's grace. 
We are dependent upon God's grace. Is anyone else really encouraged this morning by this good news that God seems to have this never-ending supply of grace available for any of us, for any of us who are willing to turn to him? Is that good news? Yeah, that's amazing grace. That's amazing grace. Okay, let's keep going, and we'll pick our story back up in verses 17 and 18. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man that will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. And so Israel has sought out God's aid. They've offered up some measure of repentance by getting rid of their foreign gods and by beginning to seek after and serve their God again. And then uh, in reply, in verse 16, God says, I can't take their suffering anymore, and uh, seeming to imply that he's about to do something about it, right? And then in 17 and 18, right at the time when when we'd be expecting to hear something like, and the Lord sent so-and-so to deliver God's people, instead we're told basically that Israel's oppressors of these last 18 years are now not only ratcheting up their oppression, but also threatening war as well. And so... Seemingly, with no direct response from God, a point we'll come back to here in a bit, the Israelites, the leaders at Gilead, which is this region of God's people that are living like east of the Jordan River, they come together and they try to figure out what to do, who might lead them in their fight against their oppressors. So let's pick it up then again in chapter 11, verse 1, and see what happens next. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That's why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. All right, that's super clear. No explanation needed, right? There's a lot of facts there for us to juggle, aren't there? But in summary, here's what's happened. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, we're introduced to the family outcast who just so happened to also be a mighty warrior as well, and his name is Jephthah. Then in verses 4 through 11, the Ammonites attack Israel just as the Israelite leaders are going about the task of recruiting Jephthah to lead them into battle against these oppressors. But there's a couple other things going on underneath the surface that I want us to look at here as well. First, let's go back for a minute and answer that question we asked about God's seeming lack of response to his people's need. Remember, 
back in, uh, let's see, 15. In 15, we said, uh, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and God could bear his people's misery no longer. And then we noted that in verses 17 and 18, God seemingly responds with silence. As we're told of Israel's recruiting efforts to try and figure out who might lead them in this war. But now, here in chapter 11, are we seeing that maybe God wasn't being silent after all? What do you think? Yeah. I'd submit to you that God isn't being silent here at all. Rather, I would argue, that he is intensely at work in responding to his people's repentance, just as he implied he would be when he said in verse 16 that he could bear his people's misery no longer. And I would argue that because, first, of the way that we've seen sovereignty, God's sovereignty, play out throughout the book of Judges almost like nowhere we will find elsewhere in scriptures, right? It's, it's everywhere we look, God's sovereignty. And also because a little bit later in the story of Jephthah, we're going to see the scriptures affirm him as a true judge raised up by God. Sorry for that spoiler. Now, it's true that earlier in the book, we had the benefit of some really clear uh, declarations about what God and his sovereignty was orchestrating. Like Language like this in Judges 3.9, among many other examples, where it says uh, things like, The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz. But even though we don't see or hear the same kind of language here coming from God concerning Jephthah, we are still seeing the same kind of thing happen aren't we? If we would have eyes to see it, what's right here in front of us, I'd argue, is the picture of a sovereign God responding to a sinful but repentant people by delivering them from oppression and suffering through the rising up of a spirit-filled deliverer to lead them into peace. By the way, that sounds a little bit like another story that we know, doesn't it? And we'll get back to that a little bit later. But here's my point, and I'll give it to you in the form of a question. Sound City, in your experience with God, in your relationship with him, in your prayers to him, do you find that the majority of the time you see, option A, you see a quick or audible or otherwise really direct response from God, or B, are his responses to you typically uh, something that you have to kind of work out and discern over time through study, through experience, through help from others? Which one of these things more closely describes your experience with God? Now, there might be some exceptions, but I'd be willing to guess that for most of us, we'd say the latter, right? And that's just what Israel is experiencing here. God's word and their experience tell them that they can trust what God says, but they're not seeing some obvious Red Sea parting kind of moment this time, are they? But isn't that encouraging in a way? To find in the scriptures examples of what so closely matches our own experience with God. Isn't it encouraging to see God's sovereign will being worked out through the ordinary experiences of life that sometimes at first glance seem to lack the fingerprints of God? Here in Judges 10 and 11, what we're seeing here is God's quiet sovereignty at work. Simultaneously working all things according to his will and working in and through the real choices and actions of everyday people. And isn't that what we experience day to day as well? Let's look at one more illustration of God's choosing activity here in Judges before we take on the next bit of scripture. 
when we look at uh, the details of Jephthah's life that are shared with us, they're pretty tragic, aren't they? Jephthah is the rejected son of a prostitute, we've said that already, uh, who's then later robbed of his inheritance and cast out of his family. Then he ends up in the land of Tob, where he gets the reputation of being a mighty warrior. And despite it all, God's favor was on him and God's spirit was with him, both of which we'll talk about a little more next week. Then years later, his half-brothers come calling on him, uh, the one they rejected, to lead them into a battle against the Ammonites. Of all people, they come calling on Jephthah, who just happens to be from Gilead, where the Ammonite army is encamping. Jephthah, who just happens to be this mighty warrior with enough military and leadership skill to have successfully led a band of other warriors off in Tob. Tob, which, according to our best historical understanding, was probably already overrun by Ammonites, who just happened to be the oppressing people that he was now being invited into battle against. See, also, he knew this enemy pretty well already. So in other words, there was literally no one on earth who would have been or could have been more suited to being Israel's judge in this particular time than Jephthah. Any votes for a coincidence on all this? No. No. With the eyes of faith, what we can see happening here pretty clearly is God's quiet sovereignty at work, simultaneously working all things according to God's will, and all the while working in and through the very real choices and actions of everyday people. With God's silent raising up of Jephthah in mind, one scholar said it plainly, that this passage that we've been working through, that it intimates that God's response to Israel's confession and repentance was to let the Ammonite army attack Israel and Gilead. That was God's response. In other words, somewhere in the mix of God's sovereignty and the real choices of those involved, God had ordained that doing things the way that he did would bring about the most glory for him and the greatest long-term and eternal good for his people as well. And as those who sit here today, those who experience real pain and real suffering in our lives, despite the mystery of precisely how all this works together, doesn't it encourage you that our God would go to such lengths in order to choose and empower an unlikely bandit chief like Jephthah so that he might bring about his will in bringing deliverance and peace to his people. Sound City, can I ask, are there places in your lives where there's pain and suffering going on that you've refused to entrust it to Jesus? Friends, are there places in your life where you're so stuck in looking at the short-term realities that you might be missing the long-term and eternal good that he's seeking to work through your circumstances? Are there corners of your life where you're assuming God has been silent when the reality of his quiet sovereignty being at work is far more likely? Yeah. Church family, I pray that we'd be encouraged this morning by this example of God's choosing of both people and circumstances in and amongst the real choices we make every day. And while we pray for real healing and relief for the real trials that we face, I pray we'd also be comforted by this often quiet sovereignty of our God and that the joy and peace we have in Christ would swell as we experience a new awareness of God's present work, even in the most difficult and even in the most ordinary happenings of our lives. Sound City, I'd submit to you today that we're not only dependent upon God's grace, but also upon God's choosing. 
All right. We've got one more passage to go, but before we move forward, let's go back and check our scorecard uh, one more time, uh, at least today, and see where we're at in our downward spiral cycle that we've been tracking. So, are, are we able to mark off another square in the new cycle on our scorecard? Not really. Not really. With Jephthah's arrival, it looks like we're seeing at least the beginnings of part four of deliverance, um, but we're not seeing true deliverance yet. And this is actually about as far as we're going to get to go in the cycle uh, this week. And so you'll have to stay tuned and see if we get to all those parts in the weeks to come. But let's go back to where we left off then in our passage. We had just walked through the first 11 verses of chapter 11. We'd just seen the Israelite leaders busily recruiting their once rejected half-brother Jephthah. And then in verse 4, the Ammonites' attack begins. Then in verses 5 through 11, Jephthah, after a little negotiating, agrees to come and lead them in their fight against the Ammonite oppressors. And receiving in return then the promise of the Gilead elders that he would become their head and their highest ranking leader. But based on what we know about Jephthah, what we are about to see here in verses 12 through 28 is really pretty surprising. Just when we'd expect our hardened bandit chief to jump right into the fight we find him taking a different tact altogether. Let's pick it up in chapter 11, verse 12. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So in verses 12 and 13, we find a spirit-led Jephthah in his first act as the head and leader of the Israelites at Gilead, not jumping into the battle as we would expect, but instead seeking to, to negotiate peaceably with the Ammonite king. And the king responds basically claiming that when Israel had come up from Egypt during the time of the Exodus, they stole Ammonite land. And so in the king's mind, at least what he's saying publicly anyway, that's what all this has been about. That Israel stole his land and that now he wants it back. Which brings us to verse 14. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhibited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So what in the world is going on in all that? I wish I could have had maps to walk you through each step of that. It is pretty confusing, but I'll try and summarize again. In reply to the Ammonite king's claim that Israel stole their land, Jephthah, in essence, tells the king, 
you need to check your history. Then Jephthah retells the story of how careful Israel was in finding its way from Egypt to the land that God had promised them. And of how careful they were to honor and really ask permission from the leaders of the lands that they were navigating through. Then Jephthah concludes by saying, basically, hey, we didn't take your land. We received that land as the spoils of a battle that we didn't even start. And it was a battle, by the way, which our God gave us victory in over and against King Sihon and the Amorites. Which then tees up, verses 23 and 24, where Jephthah now turns his argument from an argument to the right thinking about God in his story or history to now turning to an argument of right thinking about God's truth or theology. So we're in verse 23 now where Jephthah continues, saying, So then, the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one who dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and you are to take possession of them? How about you possess what Shemosh, your God, gives to you to possess, and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess? So here, Jephthah is making an argument from God's sovereignty, isn't he? In essence, he's saying, okay, king, you've got your gods. We've got the one true God. And if our God is the one who gave the Amorite land to us, are you really going to sit here and claim that it's yours? Jephthah is standing on a theological argument, and he's making a claim of authority over the land, isn't he? Because Because of his God. And he's standing on biblical truth to do so. He's claiming this biblical truth that it is God who makes nations great and he that leads them away. He's claiming the biblical truth that as God plans, so they shall be, and as God purposes, so it shall stand. Then in verses 25 and 26, Jephthah throws out an additional set of arguments based on precedent as well, just for good measure. And we're not going to spend time reading those right now, but basically what he's arguing there is that for hundreds of years now, kings in the neighboring region have peaceably respected their claim that God had given this land to them. Then in verses 27 and 28, Jephthah finally rests his case by again using the language of faith and of trust in God's sovereign plans, saying this, starting in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So Jephthah's closing argument is one that confidently leaves the matter in God's hands, trusting that he will be the one that gets to determine what happens next, and trusting that justice done in according to God's will is what will ultimately be best for God's people. So what we have here, then, if we take 12 through 28 all together, is a picture of God's chosen leader making decisions and discerning his next steps based on a studied understanding of God's story— and a genuine commitment to God's truth. God's story and God's truth. That's how he's making his decisions here. Sound City, can I ask, could the same thing be said of us? If we're honest, could the same thing be said of us? Let me ask it this way. What percentage, if you had to give a numeric value to it, what percentage of your daily discerning, planning, and decision-making would you say is done directly in light of your knowledge and study of God's story and your knowledge and study of God's truth? It's a little tough to answer, isn't it? Maybe a little convicting. But what is clear from the scriptures is that they compel us to chase after such things regularly, don't they? 
In 2 Peter 3.18, we're admonished to grow in the grace and knowledge or truth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're reminded in 2 Timothy 2.15 to do our best to present ourselves to God as those who consistently handle God's truth rightly. And the psalmist models for us uh, this wise pleading before God in Psalm 86.11 when he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Yet, as we'll see next week with Jephthah, despite him being an encouragement to us in these areas so far, he's going to get it wrong sometimes too. And the results for him when he doesn't stand on God's truth will be devastating, just as they are for us when we fail to live according to God's truth. Which brings us back to the final part of the big idea we started with today, Sound City, which is we are not just dependent upon God's grace, though we are dependent upon his grace. We are not just dependent upon God's choosing, though we are also dependent there. But we are also dependent upon God's truth. But as we get ready to turn to our time of response to what God's been teaching us, there's one more thing that I want to make sure we see this morning. And that's the relevance of Jephthah's story and the deliverance of Israel in the time of the judges to our story and our deliverance today. With each judge God raised up, God's intention is multifaceted. For God's people in the days of the judges, God's intention was to save them from their oppression and despair by raising up these temporary, imperfect leaders who would lead them back into worship and service to the one true God that he might be glorified and so that they might have seasons of peace. But today, God's desire for us with respect to judges is that we would also see the greater reality that judges foreshadows. That in Jephthah, we would see the shadow of our permanent and perfect judge, Jesus, who wouldn't just temporarily deliver God's people, but who would once for all put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's from Judges, or that's from Hebrews 9, rather. God's desire for us in the story of Jephthah's rise is that in this rejected son of a prostitute chosen by God, we would be reminded of God's divine son, Jesus, who was also rejected by his people and who also was born into the family line of a prostitute. And yet even so, was chosen by God to take away the sins of all who would call upon his name. God's desire for us in the story of Jephthah is that it would make clear to us the magnitude of the sheer magnitude of God's grace for us in Jesus, that he would stoop to save and redeem sinners and poor pedigreed rejects like us. And in Jephthah's claim of entrusting these matters to God and that he had committed no sin against the Ammonite king, God means to remind us of the truth of 1 Peter 2, that only Jesus truly committed no sin and that only he perfectly entrusted all things to God the Father. And in Jephthah, the mighty warrior that God raised up for the deliverance of his people. God means to point us to salvation in Jesus, our mighty God, who was raised up to sit at the right hand of God where he is interceding for us still. Sound City, as we turn to a time of response, may we remember that we are a people fully dependent upon God's grace, upon God's choosing, and upon God's truth, and may we be encouraged by the faithfulness of God to us in King Jesus, our perfect judge and our mighty God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word, that we might learn stories like this, 
We thank you for the gift of your church, for the gift of these people assembled here together in your name. These people assembled to worship your son, Jesus, who is our perfect judge and the greatest gift of all. We pray you would stir our hearts and affections for you now, Lord, as we respond to your teaching. And I pray all this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and turn to a time of response now. And we'll begin our time of response through giving. So if our financial stewards would come, we'll start our response time by worshiping God through giving. Now, if you're new here, if you're a guest, it might be helpful for you to know that we see this time as a part of our worship just as much as any other part of the service. But if you're a guest or if you're new, uh, please know you're under absolutely no obligation to give. We really, really mean that. Um, We don't want to take away an opportunity for you to give to the work God's doing here. Um, But you're under no obligation. And we're just happy that you're here. But for those who do decide that you'd like to give today, um, one of the key verses we look to as we set our hearts right uh, in order to give rightly is 2 Corinthians 9, 7, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if you give, let's make sure we're giving with that heart in mind. And if you have questions about how to give, there's information on the slide uh, that's up behind me on the screens there. There's also information in your weekly. And you can also talk to the folks out at the Connect Desk, and they can help you uh, know how to give in a variety of different ways after the service. Now, in a moment, you're going to see the communion elements coming around as well. Um, If you're a Christian and would like to participate in that with us, we'd encourage you to just grab one of those um, as you see those buckets being passed around. But then I'd encourage you just to hold on to the elements, and then we'll take them together here in just a little bit. But before we get to all that, uh, let me read a few discussion questions for us pulled from today's teaching. Uh, Also, a couple prayer points for us for us to consider throughout the week and for help in our community groups and personal study. And these are in your weekly as well, but I'll read them for us. Number one, in considering this sixth time in Judges that God's people have fallen into idolatry and other evils, what is your initial response to their ongoing pattern of sin? Do you find yourself more frustrated with them or more full of grace for them? And what does that response say about your own relationship with God? Number two, in what ways is it encouraging to you to realize that God's quiet sovereignty is at work in all things, even in the ordinary and mundane details of life? Number three, how does it change your perspective on your relationship with God and on your life in general to know that God's choosing, acceptance, and using of any one of us is not at all dependent upon our performance or other human criteria? Number four, what is your response to the reminder of our dependence on God's truth and in what ways might God be prompting you to grow and take action in this area? Now, we're also a uh, people committed to prayer here at Sound City, and so let me give you a few prayer points as well to get us started this week. You can be praying that as a church and individually, we would all grow in our experience of God's grace, in our dependence upon his sovereignty, and our knowledge of his truth. And then uh, prayer point number two, you can be praying that God would give each one of us opportunities to talk with non-Christians in our spheres of influence in life about God's grace and forgiveness forgiveness to us in Christ, and about the trustworthiness of God's word. Now, another way, as I mentioned, that we're going to respond this morning is through communion or the Lord's Supper. We consider this a memorial meal for us, and the Bible says that it is for Christians. The bread reminding us of Jesus' body broken for us, and the juice reminding us of his blood shed for us. And the scriptures give us instruction for taking the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians as well. The Apostle Paul saying this, 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, it looks like most of you have the elements by now. So let me pray for us. And then afterwards, we're going to respond through song as well. And then at that point, you're welcome to take the communion elements as you see fit. And then after that, I'll encourage you to stand with us and we'll worship together. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for myself and these friends once more that we would be encouraged and strengthened by the reality of your never-ceasing grace to us, your sovereign choosing of rejects like us, and the provision of your truth for us. Be with us as we pray, Lord, even in our response now. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.